Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 1st, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator for this morning. Today we'll be taking a look at Step 4 from the AA 12 and 12. The whole point of joining Overeaters Anonymous and moving all through the steps is to have a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The AA 12 and 12 states, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step four is the first action step of our journey. It gives us the opportunity to look at the manifestations of self-will that block us off from our higher power. Joining us this morning are two recovered compulsive overeaters, Janice P. and Joe M., both who reside in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and will share with us this morning their experience with Step 4. And I welcome first to the line Janice P., Star one to unmute Janice. All right. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. The wonders of modern technology always get me going in the morning. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for all being here this morning. Um, Thank you to the Vision for You group. My name is Janice. And I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Um, although I'm not uh, telling you my story this morning, and I, I hope to talk some about step four and the process, how it worked for me in step four, I, I thought I might um, qualify. Um, today, I can tell you with absolute certainty that I have a desire to stop eating compulsively. And you know, that desire, it states in the third tradition of Overeaters Anonymous, is the only requirement for membership. You know, it's a wonderful tradition that we have. It's on page 139 in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of, of uh, AA, if you, if you want to read about that tradition. You know, and I have been a compulsive overeater since my earliest memories. You know, I think I began to use food to... Um, to alter my mood, you know, for a sense of ease and comfort. Um, I use food to make me feel safe, to make me feel more secure, to distract myself from situations that baffled me, and and probably in the beginning, because I just plain liked the taste of it, you know, but I was a child. I was a child. And at some point, that use of food passed from being just a habit and a bad habit to being an obsession, to being an obsession. I, I certainly responded differently to, um, to certain foods, especially, you know, certain foods for me, foods like sugar and white flour, high fat, salty, creamy, crunchy, those, those seemed to set me off. You know, I loved them. And once I started with the first bite, 
I could no longer predict how much I would eat or when I might stop. You know, and, and the obsession ensured that I couldn't stop thinking about those foods. You know, and it, it says that on page 24 in the big book. The fact is that for most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. You know, it took a very long time before I knew that about myself. You know, I couldn't figure out why, why was it that when I began to want to stop, I could not. And once I started, I could never, ever stop myself from starting again. No matter how many times I said, I'm never doing that again. No matter how many times I suffered mightily, felt increasingly guilt and remorse for what I was doing, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. So I point that out now because I know it and I know it is the truth about myself. But then I certainly didn't. I certainly didn't. I knew I felt different and I think I had always felt different and I didn't even know what that was all about. But I began to gain weight, you know, when I was in grade school and then I felt even more different because now I'm, I'm physically different. My thinking, I can hide, I think, but my physical differences, I couldn't. You know, and I, I tell you this because I think it was at this point, this awareness of this difference, this feeling of difference in me, was when the real battle began. You know, the struggle to overcome, to conquer this thing, was only part of what was going on. You know, I began to armor up emotionally. I, I wanted no one to get too close. No one could help me with this. And so in doing that, I, I began to isolate a certain part of myself and to suffer because of that, you know, to suffer, to want something I didn't seem to be able to get. You know, this was for me, I think, the beginning of what the big book calls the bondage of self, the bondage of self. And as a result, that twisted thinking began in me. You know, it began in me. That go it alone, you must be in charge, no one can do it but you. You know, and I I suffered in that state of mind. You know, and I didn't even know how much I suffered in that state of mind. But it began to be a physical and a mental health. And I tried, to the best of my ability, to not feel it. To not feel it, to not think about it too much. But I was trapped in that place. I couldn't think about it and I couldn't not think about it. I couldn't stop it and I couldn't not. You know, it's one of those places where I chased the numbers on the scale up and down and up and down. And I began to try to find 
some solutions to it, doctors and therapists and diet clubs, supplements, gyms for exercise, weight loss drugs. I think, I think perhaps some of you know that drill. Perhaps some of you know that drill. But there did come a day when there was some hope. There did come a day when there was some hope. In 2001, I was approached by someone in whom the problem had been solved and a kit of spiritual tools was laid at my feet. A kit of spiritual tools was laid at my feet. Did I want it? Did I want it? It ended up being the 12 steps and the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous and the nine tools of OA. I grabbed hold, I climbed into that lifeboat, and I found a way out. And I found a way out. So this morning, you know, what we're talking about here is step four. And I'd like to use some things that I learned by reading the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of AA that made such a difference for me. You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous came on the scene in 1939. You know, those first 100 recovered alcoholics following the precise directions that they laid out in the big book, that book began to circulate and that movement that would become Alcoholics Anonymous grew. Thousands of recovering alcoholics. And in 1952, another book came out, the AA 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And Bill Wilson had been traveling around the country, had been visiting all kinds of different groups, step groups, discussion groups, all kinds of AA groups that had been growing all around the country. And those groups were telling him, people in those groups were telling him, that there was a need for perhaps more discussion, for people to have a resource as they were working the steps. And so the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions was written, and that book came out. And I have found that book to be, oh, so useful, oh, so useful. So if you haven't read it yourself, I highly suggest that, that you give it a try because I certainly know it's helped for me. So step four says, made a searching and fearless moral inventory. Well, I don't know about you, but the thought of step four for a very long time terrified me. You know, I had heard people talk. I think I, think I took too much stock in sometimes what other people said about step four. Oh, wait till you get to step four. Oh, step four is going to be really hard. Oh, step four is going to be really difficult. Well, you know what? I, it, all that did was make me confused. It made me confused. And, and the confusion kept me, I think, from tackling what I thought was going to be just a horrific experience in step four. But what I found was that it was the crucial, vital action step that would get me out of the bondage of self that very thing that was keeping me prisoner and blocking me from this spiritual way of living, which would be my solution, somehow 
my thinking, my twisted thinking about step four was keeping me from doing the very thing that was going to be my way out. So if you are anything like me, somewhat confused, don't let that stop you. Step four is not to be feared. Although it says we are making a fearless and thorough moral inventory of ourselves, it's a wonderful step. It's a step that brings about a freedom and an open door to a new way of life. And without doing step four, none of that could happen. None of that could happen. You know, I, I was filled with hurt. I was filled with self-pity and with resentment and with fear. And I didn't even know how those things were hurting me. I didn't even know it until I did this inventory process. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of truth about myself here. Now, this is my experience, so take it as my experience, please. I had been in the rooms of OA. I had been going to meetings faithfully. I was trying to do what I thought was the program of action in OA, but I was hanging on by a thread. I was hanging on by a thread. I had been carrying my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with me to meetings. And I knew, I knew the solution was in there. I knew it. Somewhere deep inside of myself, I knew it. But remember, I was confused. I was confused about how it actually could work, how those steps and that information in the big book and in the AA 12 and 12 could apply to me could apply to me, a precise direction, the explanations in the 12 and 12. They were confusing to me. So how did I apply those very same steps, these very same directions to myself, to myself? Well, first off, that person in whom the problem had been solved helped greatly. Someone who was walking ahead of me who had also done this thing. And what I learned, which I must admit was something that I had been hearing, was put the food down. First, put the food down. And I knew that's what it said in the big book. That this allergy that had been triggering me, this physical manifestation of the disease and the obsession of the mind, needed to first have the food down. Well, how is that going to work? And that's where some of the OA tools started to make sense to me. OA had been instructing me to go to a doctor, a dietitian, or a nutritionist and get a plan of eating. And then that plan of eating would include, for me, weighing and measuring my food. It would get the food safe. It would eliminate all my trigger foods, all my binge foods, it would give me a sane plan of eating for me and the brain would clear. <laughs> my brain would clear. It was a disciplined and structured approach to my recovery. And then when my brain was cleared, everything began to look a little different to me and I could see things in step four that I could not see before. You know, step four, 
I would find would open the door to my flawed thinking process. I had a flawed thinking process. I didn't even know how that worked in me. I had developed these concepts, these deep-seated convictions, this whole belief system about myself and about other people in the world. And that was twisted. My thinking processes were twisted. And I wore a mask, and I didn't let people get too close, but boy, I played a good part. I played a good part. I managed to navigate the world, but inside I was suffering from a soul sickness, from a soul sickness, because I was cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. I was cut off from the very things that make life beautiful and happy. And I didn't even know that. So out of that twisted thinking, out of that whole belief system and all of those concepts that had been developed in me, developed a whole lot of resentments, a whole lot of fears, a whole lot of guilt, a whole lot of remorse, a whole lot of anger about things. You know, step four says it's a moral inventory. And I believe that they mean the word moral to mean truth. So it talks about, in the 12 and 12, about that inventory process, getting rid of the unsaleable goods. You know, and I've I've heard it said, I think Joe and Charlie in in their um, talks talk about women's purses. I could relate to that. I could relate to that. What if I'm selling women's purses? You know, what if I've got a whole inventory of women's purses and they're sort of cluttering up the store? They're not arranged in any real way, but maybe some of them are damaged. Maybe some of those purses are damaged and no one wants to buy them. Maybe some of them were sold out, but I never replaced the inventory. Maybe some of them are sold stolen. Maybe maybe some of them are missing and I didn't even know it. You know, so it's going to give me a process of taking inventory. You know, and the big truth about myself would be revealed to me in that process. You know, in the 12 and 12, it says, it talks about on page 47, my erratic emotions. You know, my erratic emotions. And they had always made big disturbances. It says on page 47, we learned that if we were seriously disturbed, our first need was to quiet that disturbance, regardless of who or what we thought caused it. Well, I didn't even know what those disturbances looked like in me if I couldn't identify them and those erratic emotions. How was I ever going to be able to? to do anything about it. And this inventory process looked at those erratic emotions. Where did they come from? You know, did they come out of those feelings of fear? Was I afraid of something? Afraid something was going to be taken away from me? Afraid something I wanted I wasn't going to get? Was I, was I operating with those deep-seated resentments, replaying in my head over and over again? what people said, how they behaved, what I should have said, what I could have said, what I should have done. You know, my emotions would be all over the place. You know, it talks about our instincts. And the instincts that I had 
that were very good instincts that every human has, mine got twisted all out of shape. My instincts, it says in the 12 and 12, became twisted and they became something that was hardly even recognizable anymore. And I was going to be able to put all of these things down on paper. I was going to be able to list these things. I was going to be able to name them. I was going to be able to put them down on black and white. And that was going to be a great start. You know, on page 46, this is something that I thought was so wonderful and so helpful, and it's been my experience. It says, at this stage of the inventory proceedings, our sponsors come to the rescue. They can do this for they are carriers of AA's tested experience with step four. The sponsor promptly proves by talking freely and easily and without exhibitionism about his own defects, past and present. This calm yet realistic stock-taking is immensely reassuring. You know, it's immensely reassuring when someone in whom the problem has been solved says, oh my God, they're like me. You know, that kind of reassurance that I was not alone opened the door to helping me share with other people. And in my experience with Step 4, there were other people that I met, that I talked to, who were also working Step 4. And let me tell you, the phone lines were buzzing. We talked to each other. I shared things about what I was doing with Step 4, what I was uncovering in Step 4, way before I actually got to Step 5, because it was like a pressure cooker sometimes in me. The more things I identified, the more things I looked at, the more things I wrote down, the more I needed to share with other people. And those other people admitted to me that they were finding those same very things in their inventory. And then when my sponsor shared with me her own defects of character, the things she was working on, past and present, I thought, I am not alone. I am like these people. And that growth of a fellowship in me was so wonderful, was so wonderful. And the tools of OA helped support me as I worked this inventory process. Lots and lots of those phone calls. I also, my meetings kept me grounded, kept me grounded because I went to those meetings, heard the reassurances that this thing works, heard how it works in the meeting, pitched on what I was doing, pitched on working the steps, got to talk to people who were on the other side. I did service at my meetings. I showed up and I learned about myself through other people and through this inventory process. You know, I couldn't hold it all in And so it opened the door to sharing with other people. You know, I'm so glad. I could perceive things in others that I was seeing in myself. You know, that they too had erratic emotions. That they too had these disturbances. That they too had that soul sickness. But that together, we were working on this thing. That whatever fears I had had didn't need to stop me. 
from filling out my columns, filling out my columns, doing the very things that I was being reassured would lead me out of this place, out of this place. You know, I, I found the sex conduct things to be not as easy, but not as difficult as I thought either. You know, that those relationships that I tried forming never seemed to work very well because they were based on all of my twisted thinking. But getting it down on paper, things I thought I would take to my grave, secrets that I had been keeping, things that I could barely look at or think about myself also came out. And the 12 and 12 talks about that. You know, my selfish pursuits of the sex relations damaged other people in me. When and how did that happen? It says that on page 50, the bottom of the page. You know, questions that I could ask myself. What people were hurt and how badly? Did I jeopardize my standing in the community? How did I react to these situations? Did I absolve myself of things I needed to look at? Did I become vengeful or depressed because of it? Did I take it out on other people? You know, those were good questions for me to ask myself. And it helped me to fill out those columns. It helped me. It helped me to begin to see my part in things. My part in things. How I behaved. Not just as a victim. And certainly there were situations where I was the victim. But it helped me to see the whole big picture. The whole big picture. You know, that soul sickness in me needed healing. And that's what the 12 and 12 was telling me. There was a way to ask myself the hard questions, put it all down on paper, and find the healing. Because I found this fourth step process was a way to start forgiving myself. You know, I've heard it said that this is a program of forgiving, but it is also forgiving, forgiving away so that I can keep it. You know, so that I can keep it. And I love that I'm able to talk to you about this this morning because guess what? Every time I do this, I learn something new about myself. You know, who knew that that would still be happening? Thank God that I still learn things about myself and that I discover, uncover, and discard new things about myself that are not useful to me, that are not helping me, that I have more things to talk to my sponsor about, that I have things to share with you on the phone call, that I can see how this literature, how this 12 and 12, has so much wisdom in it because it's people's shared experience. It's not a theory. I get to live it. I get to live it. And because I'm also human, I get to discover past and present all the time, all the time. You know, there's nothing more beautiful to me than having the ringside seat to the miracle, to watching you recover, to hearing your voices on the Vision for You phone line and to listen to you recover. Because I hear you. I hear you as you share that new things are being uncovered and discovered and discarded in you as well. And it gives me hope, and it keeps me hopeful. 
So thank you for letting me share this morning, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Janice, for your share this morning on your experience with Step 4. And now we welcome Joe M. to the line. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I will talk about Step 4, but I do want to qualify why I'm here in the first place. I used to weigh 254 pounds. Uh, I had food hangovers every morning. I had to lean against something or sit everywhere I went because gravity was pulling so hard on my heavy body. Um, I was pursuing with a vengeance fast food, restaurants, grocery stores, convenience stores, movie theater concession stands. I was afraid of having a heart attack, getting cancer, or getting adult-onset diabetes because of my obesity. Every occasion was an excuse to eat, open houses, birthday parties, holiday gatherings, weddings, work celebrations, and so on. I didn't need an excuse to eat, but these events made it easier to eat because I had social permission to do so. I couldn't see the floor of the backseat of my car because I'd use my car as a binge mobile, and I threw all my boxes and bags and canisters back there, and they accumulated. Um, Any windows of open time, I spent looking for opportunities to eat. Where can I get something? What can I get? Can I eat in secrecy with nobody seeing me? My car and my bedroom were two prime eating places because they allowed me the ability to shove it in with abandon without worrying about the social consequences. I had to alter my mood. I couldn't stand who I was inside, and the only relief I knew from that was eating. Eating worked. Even if only for a few minutes, it worked. It took the edge off, and in the insane pursuit of changing my mood, taking the edge off was the only thing that mattered, and I didn't care in those moments about the consequences, but of course, I always did pay the consequences. Uh, Baking was a way for me to get large quantities of sugar, flour, and fat into my system. I would bake large supplies and eat them all. I never shared this with, you know, roommates or people I was, you know, family members I was living with uh, at the time. I remember coming home from work in my 20s, and I would make a little instant potatoes and some orange juice to get in, quote, some good food, and then I'd make a big batch of cookies and eat them all, downing them with milk for several hours in front of the television. I baked pies and cakes, muffins and breads, coffee cakes, sugar, flour, and fat, like I said, were my favorite combination. Um, I did feel bad about what I was doing. I felt bad for years about what I was doing, and yet I couldn't stop. I tried stopping with diets, paid weight loss programs, ther- therapy, um, you know, psychological books, tr- self-awareness. Uh, those things only ever had minor, if any, uh, impact, and I would, I would ultimately you know, go back into the food. By the time I came to OA, I had been overeating for more than 20 years. I knew that when I came to OA that I had found something different than anything I had tried before. I knew that something more than a diet was being presented to me. Today I have three years and nine and a half months of continuous sobriety from food obsession and all the dishonesty that goes along with it. The fact that I am a recovered compulsive overeater is the direct result of the program of recovery in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The AA 12 and 12 supports and complements the Big Book for me, and the 12 and 12 has wonderfully rich language to describe the process I have to go through to become recovered and to stay recovered. So I've been asked to speak on step four using the AA 12 and 12 as my my guide, and I love the directness of the 12 and 12. In the chapter on step four on page 47, it says, we thought conditions drove us to drink, and when we tried to correct these conditions and found that we couldn't to our entire satisfaction, our drinking went out of hand and we became alcoholics. It never occurred to us that we needed to change ourselves to meet conditions, whatever they were. 
by the time I got to step four, I was willing to do it because I knew I didn't have a choice. I had put the food down. Now I was faced with the resulting turmoil because I wasn't medicating it. So I was pulled into step four by being woken up with abstinence and the realization that I have to move forward to prevent from moving backward back into the food and all the misery and hopelessness that went along with it. Uh, I proceeded to do an inventory using the big book method, and I filled out the resentment and fear sheets in two weeks. My recovered sponsor instructed me how to do this, and then I went to it. I listed the people and institutions I resented, why I resented them, and what it affected in me. Uh, And then I did something I never, ever thought that I would do in a million years. I prayed for these people each and every one, because that is part of the big book process. In my life, I had only ever gotten as far as blaming other people for my misery, but now I was being called upon to start practicing a spiritual discipline that started putting some distance between me and my blame of others. I walked into new territory and listed very specifically my part in these resentments, my part in the interactions I had with these people, the attitude I took, the behavior I exhibited. I had never done this before. It was fresh terrain, and it was a huge leap of faith to do this. I didn't know what would happen. It was unknown territory. It was a new experience, and I was not guaranteed of the outcome. I just took the leap because I didn't see that I had any choice. A shift was starting to happen as I was listing my part in things. I was starting to see my resentments in a new light. In Chapter 4, on Step 4, in the AA 12 and 12, on page 50, it says, By now the newcomer has probably arrived at the following conclusions, that his character defects, representing instincts gone astray, have been the primary cause of his drinking and his failure at life, that unless he is now willing to work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, both sobriety and peace of mind will elude him, that all the faulty foundation of his life will have to be torn out and built anew on bedrock. I had to start growing up in my thinking. I had to start owning the way I thought about these resentments. This applied also to the fears and the sex conduct portion of my four-step. I had to start standing at the center of my thinking as an adult and be willing to say, the way I have been thinking has failed. And I know this because had my thinking been successful, I wouldn't be overeating. I wouldn't be in such turmoil. So because of my desperation that brought me into the rooms of OA and then the desperation not to go back into the food, I was willing to start taking ownership of my thoughts and all of my past behavior related to these resentments. And this is the radical nature of this 12-step program. It is uninterested in providing me psychological alibis for avoiding looking at myself squarely in the face. Instead, The program is tough love and stands there and tells me in a calm but direct way, Joe, your thinking is way off. You have to allow your thinking to be confronted and changed because the way you have been thinking is so distorted, that distortion needs to be medicated, and you're medicating it with food. So for you to become free, Joe, you must undergo a radical change of mind radical meaning from the root so looking at my part in things in the step four inventory is my first act of willingness that is truly different than the other acts of willingness i've had up to this point because being willing to look at my part was the first layer of the personality change required to bring about recovery 
So to give you a couple of examples from my fourth step, I had resented a movie theater company. You know, and my justification was, well, they're big and rich, and they take up so much space in our world, and blah, 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 blah. Well, get to my part, I snuck into that movie theater for years to get, quote, free movies for myself, and I, and I didn't pay my way. Not only did I do that, but I felt entitled to do so. So the behavior was stealing, and the thinking was entitlement. And I realized in taking my, you know, looking at my part in things, it doesn't matter how big and rich a company is. I am not entitled to steal from that company. Uh, And, of course, that formed the basis of what came next, which was, you know, eventually my amends and writing out a check to that movie company and sending it to them. I had resented my dad. You know, he had done and said things when I was a kid that I was still mad about all these years later. And then I looked at my behavior toward my dad. Um, you know, especially as I was an adult. And I saw there in black and white how I had treated him. And I saw how unacceptable my behavior was, screaming and yelling at him, neglecting him, ignoring his retirement, and so on, and owning those things. This beginning of shifting my thinking was essential for me because I had to start learning that the answer to my problem was not for other people to change or for other people to apologize to me, but rather for me to take full ownership of my behavior toward them and my thinking about them. Taking ownership was the beginning of a kind of freedom I had never had before. In step four in the AA 12 and 12 on page 54, it says, whatever the defects, they have finally ambushed us into alcoholism and misery. And it's interesting that they say the defects ambushed us into alcoholism and misery. It doesn't say other people ambushed us. It doesn't say circumstances ambushed us. It says our defects ambushed us into alcoholism and misery. This was vital for me to accept so that I could start seeing that the root of my problem was inside me, that other people's behavior was not the reason I was overeating. It was not the reason I was unhappy and unfree. I was unfree because of my resentments and my fears, and that in order for me to become free of those things, um, I had to be uh, willing to get them down on paper, be thorough about them, and really face that these resentments and fears were mine. They didn't belong to the people on my list. They belonged to me. And once I was able to own them, I became ready and willing to have them taken from me. And with that, I will pass. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you so much. Now we open the line up for any questions you might have. Uh, Janice did have to step away from the line for another commitment, but uh, we have Joe here. If you have any questions related to anything that was shared this morning or anything uh, from Step 4, the big book, or the AA 12 and 12, this is your opportunity, star 1, to unmute.
Any questions on step four? I have a question. This is Colleen, um, a compulsive overeater. I I have a question for Joe. When she was doing step four, when you did your categories and that, how did you come about seeing your character defects? Did it just become evident to you, or did was it your sponsor that pointed it out? How did that work for you? Well, I used the uh, sheets that were uh, – developed by Blaine. He's an AA out of Canada. And these sheets are exacting to the big book. So they're eight and a half by 11 sheets and they're very structured. And I found them extraordinarily useful um, because it's so methodical how you fill the sheet out. And so the sheet has on the right-hand side the four character defects that any of us ever have, which is uh, selfishness, self-seeking, dishonesty, and fear. And so I looked at where was I selfish, where was I self-seeking, where was I dishonest, and where was I fearful in each of these resentments. And I found all four of those qualities active in every single resentment I ever had. And I I find that true today as well. You know, when I have to go back and do a 10-step, all four of those. So I filled out all four of those as it pertained to each of the resentment. And then from that, when I was looking at the specific behavior and the specific thinking, I saw a lot of qualities in myself that I was not aware of. Um, And and I listed those, and I I remember putting them on a recipe card. Oh, my gosh, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. Uh, And uh, and I saw that I had these patterns of behavior that were um, irresponsible and selfish, etc., I heard a, um, a a big book study by Laurie out of Canada, and he talked about how any one of us only ever has four character defects, that we don't really have to worry about any, one, any other defect other than the four that are listed in the inventory. And when I heard that, I thought that was so useful. That's been very useful for me, um, very helpful, because I don't know about you, but for me, I can complicate things. And complicating things in this program has never helped me. It's only ever gotten in my way. And the thing that helps me in this program is simplicity. Um, I find the program to be wonderfully simple. And so I find that just focusing on those four qualities that are listed in the inventory process are the only four qualities I ever have to worry about. Selfishness. I want something for myself, you know, at someone else's expense, or I demand it because I think I have a right to it. You know, it's, it's selfish. It's wanting something for myself without regard to how that affects anybody else or anything else. Selfishness. Self-seeking. It's wanting someone else to do something so that I can feel better or so that I can avoid a certain feeling. I want you to do X so that I don't feel angry. I want you to do X so that I don't feel deprived. That's self-seeking. That's how I view self-seeking, and I have found that to be uh, very accurate for myself. Um, dishonest, you know, I either say something that isn't true or I withhold honesty where honesty is called for. And then fearful, you know, I'm afraid of losing something that I have. As it's been described to me, I'm afraid of losing something that I have or I'm afraid of not getting something that I want. So those four qualities are the only four that I ever have to worry about, and that is what I instruct my sponsees because I know for myself, as you know, and I, I hear this too in the rooms that, you know, oh, well, procrastination is a character defect of mine. Well, you may be a procrastinator, but really that that falls under one of those four. You know, it may be selfish because if you're procrastinating and you're not considering how that affects the person who's waiting for you, that's selfish. It may also be dishonest because you're assuming 
that your procrastination doesn't have an effect on someone else. So I am a, a huge advocate of... I'm a huge advocate of just following the Big Book Method and just uh, going by those four defects. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Colleen, for the question. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Uh, This is Sally in South Jersey. Good morning, Sally. Go ahead. Hi, Joe. It's Sally um, in South Jersey. I've talked to you in the past, and thank you so much for your wonderful share this morning. Um, I guess I have uh, two questions for you. The first one is because um, playing God was such a huge uh, character flaw of mine um, that I realized out of um, doing step four, and, and really only because my sponsor kept pointing it out to me, it was really a blind spot for me that I was doing this. Um, and, um, you know, trying to rescue people is a huge character flaw. I wondered, where does that fit in with these four? Um, I want to hear what you think about where playing God would fit in, because it really leads me to take a look at my step six list of character flaws and reevaluate where they fit in with these four, because I think you're right. I think it is. Um, we overcomplicate it, and I and I'm certainly um, have done that for a long time. But that one uh, playing God... Um, is one that uh, I'm really unsure of how you would fit that in with that. And also, can you share more on this Blaine um, from Canada, this um, site that you got these sheets from, because I've never heard of it before, and I'm sure there are others like me who would just like to access that information. Sure. Well, I'm taking this first question. I mean, I would just say what you, what you would do is you take a look at how does playing God manifest itself, and then you say, well, where's the selfishness in that? Where's the dishonesty in that? Where's the self-seeking in that? And where's the fear in that? And you'll find it. I guarantee you, you'll find those four qualities in the quality of playing God. Okay, thank you, Joe. And then with regard to um, the sheets, um, Lori has, I believe Lori uh, out of Canada has these sheets posted on his website, and I'm sorry, I don't, I don't remember what his web, what his um, web address is. Um, um, it's oabigbook.info. Oabigbook.info. So if you go there, I believe he has these available on his, on his site. Thank you, thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes, good information to have. They can be found on that website. And I also wanted to say with regard to the sheets, there are a couple of different kinds of sheets floating out around there. And not all the sheets that are out there are, are exacting to the Big Book Method. And that's why I say go, just go to Lori's site because those will be exacting to the Big Book Method. There's another sheet, there's at least one other sheet that's out there, and they've altered the Big Book Method, which I do not do. I am not going to tamper with what works. So I would recommend that anyone who wants to use these sheets make sure they're exacting to the Big Book Method. Thank you, Sally, for the question. Hi, Joe. My name is Sandy. Sandy, go ahead. Hi. Thanks very much. I'm still not clear on the difference between selfishness and self-seeking. Maybe you could expand on that. Well, selfishness is I want something for myself and I don't care how it affects somebody else. You know, uh, I'm going to butt in line because... I'm in a hurry, and I don't care how that affects the person I've butted in front of. That's selfish. 
self-seeking is, you know, I want, you know, let's, I'll just make this up. Let's say, let's say you have a neighbor that's blasting loud music. Um, self-seeking is, I want the neighbor not to blast their loud music so that I don't have to muster the courage to go and ask them to turn it down. That's self-seeking. Thank you, Sandy, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Hi, you hear me? I'm Linda. Hi from North Carolina. Linda, go ahead. I also heard someone else. Who else? I'm Linda from North Carolina, recovered compulsive overeater. Very grateful. I've been listening this morning. One minute. Linda, go go ahead first, please. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Linda Recovery, Compulsive Overeater. I'm in North Carolina. Anyway, I'm listening this morning. I'm very grateful to the vision for you. I've been listening, you know, regularly. I've been in program many, many years. I've done the fourth step many different ways. Um, the last time I did it was with a recovered sponsor. It was the most effective for me, but I just want to also say I had done it about five years ago with a a big book step study, which is study of the big book, and it did take a little longer. However, when I got to the end of the fourth, you know, to do the fourth step, it was really the same process. I know for me that um, this program is a process of, you know, really like learning something every single day, applying the tools, and of course, doing a lot of service um, and cultivating my spiritual enlargement. However, I just want to say that I am so blessed and grateful for the program because when things come up on a daily basis, and they will, I am able to do spot check inventory. And also, you know, the fourth is ongoing as well. Like I had some core issues surface again that I didn't address in my fourth step inventories, and I go right back to the sheets. Also, I want to say that, you know, when I worked with the recovered sponsor, the part of the toolkit of recovered sponsorship is to have those sheets. And she sent them to me, and I was able to print them out, do my fourth step, you know, according to the big book. And I believe that all the people that I've worked with, the recovered sponsors, I'm one now, I have those sheets. So part of my process of giving the program to the people is to send them the sheets. So that's another thing. And um, the other thing I got from this recovered, you know, a program is that I do a daily, they call it an 11-step inventory. You know, it's really my 10-step. And on that 11-step inventory every night, I send it to my sponsor. And again, it's really a review of my inventory every single day so that I can identify the patterns in my day, such as selfishness. And my sponsor, when she told me the definition of selfishness was a whole new world opened up to me, because what it means to me is that my world and my life is not the way I want it to be. And I'm being selfish because my world and my day and people, places, and things are not the way I want them to be. I want them to be different. And to me, self-centeredness is when I'm self-seeking. My ego is out of whack, and I'm, I need to deflate my ego, and the opposite for me is to get humble fast. So I just wanted to share all these things I've learned, you know, as a recovered sponsor. And I also thank my sponsor who gave me all of these new tools to work on a daily basis. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Any other questions, please, related yeah, this to is, step four? This is go Ruth. ahead. Ruth, okay. go ahead. 
All right, this is Ruth, recovered sponsor, and I would like to uh, cover compulsory. We are at the World World Service Convention in in, in Cleveland, and let's give a raw. Okay, there's more than a couple here. All right, uh, I got a question. We have three prayers that are mentioned, and there was one mentioned in the talk. One, the resentment prayer, of course, the bottom of page 66, top of, of 60, 66, top of 70, 67, the fear prayer on 68, and the sex prayer on 70. Could the speakers talk about their use of those three prayers in order to improve their conscious contact with God and more completely complete step four relative to the big book? Thanks. Well, I, I just I did the prayers as directed in the four step process. I mean, that's part of the instructions, so that's what I did. And that was part of the I, I think my most my most memorable experience of the prayers was the resentment prayer. Um, uh, it was, you know, the resentment prayer is part of the four-step inventory. Um, it's it's praying for someone because they may be spiritually sick. Um, you know, God, so-and-so is perhaps spiritually sick. Please help me show so-and-so the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. And that was a really different way of me thinking than I had ever thought before. Um, it it allowed me to pause and consider that there was some distance between me, as I said earlier, some distance between me and my historical pattern, which was there at fault, there at fault, there at fault, there at fault, and praying for them. Um, allowed me to start considering that I am a separate person from them, that we're not joined at the hip, and this prayer was essential for me to start moving away from the blame and just start looking at my part. And that was that was really important, and the fear prayer also was really important. Um, you know, God, please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. And I think it's interesting, the fear prayer doesn't say, please remove the circumstances or please change the other person. It says, remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. So again, you know, we're being told that the problem is internal because my fear is inside me. Um the fear is not about actual circumstances. It's what I'm feeling inside or the way I'm thinking about it inside. And that's where the God of my experience works for me. It's inside me. Um, and then the sex conduct prayer, you know, it's really calling on the God of my experience to help me take into account a bigger, more full, um, full consideration in the way that I think and the way that I behave with regard to sexual matters. Um, so I hope that answers your question, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth, for the question. And, of course, we welcome everyone at the uh, Overeaters Anonymous World Service Convention. We're glad you're here. Welcome to all. Anyone else with question this morning related to Step 4? Star one to unmute. Hi, it's Dee in Toronto. Can I ask a question? Yes, Dee, go ahead. 
Hi, it's Adi, Compulsive Eater in Toronto. I'm actually in the middle of my fourth step. Um, first time doing it the big book way, this way with Lori Sheets, actually. Um, I'm in the fear inventory. Now, if I have the same, like if I've got, let's say, like a fear of abandonment, and so I've got that, like, fear of abandonment from my from my husband, from my children, would, I, would you list those as individual fears, or is really it's the same fear, like, just manifesting with different people? And I'd like to know, like, stuff like that, how you would, how you would handle that. Yeah, I listed them individually. That's how I did it. Um, and for me, what was really insightful in doing the fear inventory was, you know, the fear inventory asks, what, what do I fear? Why do I fear it? And I had similar kinds of fears as you, you know, fear of abandonment or whatever, you know, fear of abandonment. Okay, I'm afraid so-and-so is going to abandon me. Why do I have the fear? Because... If so-and-so abandons me, what will happen to me? You know, if so-and-so abandons me, I don't think I'll have any value. God, please remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be, which for me is not that I won't be abandoned. I'm not asking God to protect me from being abandoned. What I'm asking God to do is alleviate the fear that I won't have any value if I'm abandoned, because I may be abandoned. External things may happen. I may lose my job. My coworker might not like me. My cat might die. I might get evicted. My car might break down. Because this is life and those things happen. What I'm asking God for is to alleviate me of the fear if those things actually happen. Because that's my real adversary. Because my strength comes not from other people doing what I want but from the internal strength of if someone else does something that is going to impact me, like abandon me, I need to go to that inner strength. I need to call on God to say, okay, I've lost my job. My husband's abandoned. I mean, I'm a lesbian, so I won't say that, but, you know, so-and-so has abandoned me, or, you know, my cat is, how do I marshal the God within me when those external things happen? If those external things were to happen, that's how I use that. And this has been enormously life-changing for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adi. Your question. Hi, Anyone this else? is Florence. Can you hear Florence, me? Florence, go ahead. Yes. Great, thanks. Okay, I'm kind of a newbie. Um, been since January, and I got the big book in my hand. And um, the speaker had talked about the four resentments, and I thought I knew what they were from six, page 65, but um, I, I guess I, she said focus on the ones in the book, that the main four will, will inform all of the others. So could you say a little more about where that is or what they are or both? Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I can find the exact page, but I know that I know they are listed um, in the, the Step 4 inventory. Uh, where had we been? I think the question is, where had we been... Um, selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and frightened. Um, I don't know if I want to, uh, let's see here. Okay, so page 65, it's got the, it's got the example. Um, and then page 66, um, let's see here. I'm looking. Um, Middle of 67. Page 67. 
Yeah, someone else might be able to find this. I, I just know, here it is. Okay, it's on page 67. It's in the third paragraph. It says, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Wow. Wow. Okay. That's yep. great. Okay. And I'll try that website, too, for the sheets from um, Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unless you want to say something else, thank you so much for your sh- your, your 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 wisdom. <laughs> well, you're welcome, but it's not wisdom. It's just my experience in following directions. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Florence, for the question. Anyone else with a question related to Step 4 this morning? Yes, good morning. Uh, good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. This is Lisa, uh, recovered um, compulsive overeater in South Jersey. And uh, I wanted to thank the, the speakers. This was so, so very helpful. Um, I am have the privilege of taking someone through the uh, steps right now. And... I have a question about the, um, I hear the fourth column, thank you, it was explained so clearly, and I have no confusion around what to guide people in doing this. However, um, what is the turnaround? I've heard people, is the fourth column the turnaround that people mention? I mean, because I've never really heard that um, language before. I don't see that in the big book. But um, I've heard people reference the turnaround when you're doing your fourth step. Um, so, with that, and do you clarify that? Yeah. Well, uh, it talks about. Um, I mean, it says. Um, okay. On page 67, I'm going through that that page again. Um, where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. I mean, we compulsive overeaters are experts at blaming people. We excel at it. So if we're going to have recovery, we've got to start learning a different way of doing things. That's why, that's why the right-hand column, looking at our part, that's why it's the turnaround. Because it signifies a break between years, and for most of us, many, many, many years of very deeply ingrained patterns of blaming somebody else for our overeating, for our misery, for our unhappiness. And that's why, it, that's why it's the turning point. Okay. When you're doing that column, that's where you apply what, what you just discussed, uh, being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Yes. That's but they're not a whole thing of um, what you should have done or how you're going to do it the next time or whatever. It's just identifying what area. Yeah, it's um, um, the inventory, the four-step inventory is about the past. Right. It's not about right. what you're going to do. It's not about the future. It's about the past. Well, I mean, a fear, you can, you can be afraid that something is going to happen. In that sense, maybe that's a little bit about the future, but it's about past behavior. What I did, what I did not do. What I said, what I did not say. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so so much. You're <laughs> because I, there are several different forms floating around, and I I really appreciate you clarifying the one that is very specific to the big book. Yes. You and you don't have to use this eight and a half by eleven sheet. 
You don't have to use the form to do the fourth step. I, I use it because it is so objective and measurable that I find, and I find it especially helpful for us compulsive overeaters because we, again, you know, we want to complicate things. But if you want to just go into the big book and write and do the writing according to their instructions, I mean, you can do that. I just find that the forms are, they're so useful um, because they, not only are they, they're exacting to the big book, they're measurable and objective, but they're also limited. And that, that's because another thing that we do as compulsive overeaters, when we complicate it, we make it go on and on and on and on and on. And what the form does is it gives us limited space. And it says, who do you resent? Put, put a person's name in there. Why do you resent the causes? You know, there are several lines. There's not that much space. So it forces you to get to the heart of the matter. You know, they, you know, when I was 10 years old, you know, I, I resent, who do I resent? My best friend from fifth grade, why? Well, you know, she stole my doll and she never returned it. Um, what is this affecting me? You know, blah, you know, it's just, it gets to the heart of the matter. The fourth step is not an essay. It's, it's, it's data. It's facts. And these eight and a half by 11 sheets enable us to stick to the fact, you know, just the facts, ma'am. So that's another reason I'm a huge advocate for using them. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. Um, everyone, have a blessed day. You as thank well. Thank you, Lisa, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions related to step four? Hi, this is Mary Lynn this is from Connecticut. Mary Lynn, go ahead. Yes, hi, thank you so much. Uh, very grateful to both speakers. This is in relation to harms and Many years ago, I had seen the forms, and it said harms done due to sexual conduct and harms done other than from sexual uh, conduct. And right now, I'm in the middle of a fourth step, and um, the forms I received said about the sexual conduct. They also said about eating conduct, and my sponsor said just blend them together. Um, Can you make a comment on that, please? Yeah, that sounds like complicating the process. Um, I've heard of the harms, you know, the, you, you list the harms. You don't have to list harms separately because you'll be listing your harms when you list the selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and fearful. Selfish, I stole money from the till where I worked. That's a harm. That's selfish and that's a harm. You know, dishonest, uh, I lied to my brother about that phone call that he got from his girlfriend. You know, that's a harm. So your harms will come out of your four-step inventory. You don't have to. You don't have to use the word harm and then list them. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Mary Lynn. And I heard someone else also coming on for a question. This is Susan. Susan, JJ. go ahead. Susan, Thank and then you. JJ. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, You may feel, Joe, like you covered this uh, in responding to Ruth, but if you have anything else to add, I'd I'd welcome it. What about those, you know, some of these resentments are of long standing, and some of them are are tougher to, to let go of. And I utilize more than the freedom from bondage prayers for others, I use 
the, the prayers in the directions of the big book um, where we're uh, invited to, you know, the resentment prayer. Some call it, others call it the sick man's prayer. And even doing that diligently, and I'm very diligent about doing it, I find Sorry, I got that voice came on. Um, even in doing that diligently, I find that there are some that uh, I feel very attached to. You know, there's a payoff, whatever else. We, we don't need to get into the psychological jargon. But I wonder if you've had that experience and uh, if you could speak of the transformation occurring. Uh, because some have lifted beautifully and magically, but others are, are still hanging on, or I should say I'm still hanging on. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, well, th- I think it's important to say that the resentment prayer is just one of the aspects of step four. We are not alleviated of our resentments by praying for people. That is not what alleviates our resentment. What the prayer does is it starts creating, it just comes in there and starts creating that necessary wedge between us and the blame of others. That's the function of that prayer. Whenever I hear someone in OA say, I resent someone, so I'm going to go pray for them, I'm thinking that is way insufficient. That is an attempt at a shortcut that never works, ever, 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 ever works. And sometimes I will hear people go to that story in the back, I think it's called Freedom from Bondage, and they reference the story of the woman who had a resentment against her mother, and she found that prayer in the magazine, pray for someone for two weeks, and even if you don't mean it, blah, 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 blah. That is not what we do to alleviate ourselves of a resentment. Four through nine alleviates the resentment. And that's the only thing that will alleviate us of a resentment. Now, if you go through a four through nine and you still find yourself resentful, then you either didn't do a thorough four through nine or you may need another 12-step program. Sometimes some of us have a cluster of resentments that are kind of in their own category And OA may not be the appropriate place for those. We may need other 12-step programs for those. But I I cannot emphasize strongly enough that the prayer portion of the inventory is one action among many. And if we think that that action is more important than the others, we will fail at our four-step inventory. Thank you so much. Can I just ask a a follow-up question related to the same subject? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree about the freedom from bondage. I, that wasn't the one I'm referring to. I'm referring to the one that's part of the instructions on page 60-something. I have it memorized, so I don't remember what page it's on. And I am in no way suggesting that I do that and, and expect that alone to be the, the ticket. I mean, I'm turning over my fifth step. I've done it the big book way, all of that. I guess what I'm asking is, um, you mentioned steps four through nine. So has your experience been that there might have been some resentments that you were still hanging on to in five as you're turning over five that cleared up as you continue to work the rest of the steps? And with that, I now pass. Thanks so much. Yes, I mean, it, it really, and step five was hugely, I mean, of course, it's necessary. Step five is necessary in my experience. For step five, excuse me, um, I actually started um, taking a turn with one of my resentments in step five because I was, I was, I had one, I had one person that I had not prayed for 
in my resentment, you know, in my fourth step. And I told my sponsor this when I was giving away step five. And he said, Joe, you've got to do it. And I was just, I mean, my stomach was just in a knot and I was just hanging on for dear life. And with my sponsor sitting there, I said the resentment prayer for this person and I felt myself starting to let go of that iron-fisted grip on the resentment. And so that was the only one that I really, I needed to do the resentment prayer that was part of the fourth step at my fifth step with my recovered sponsor. Some of these, and you're right, I mean, some, some of our resentments go really deep, but the requirement for us to get free of them is still the same. We are not entitled to hang on to those resentments just because they are deep-seated or just because they are long-standing or just because they involve people who've been in our lives our whole lives or just because that person was responsible for taking care of us or just because that person did something that was perhaps even life-changing. I had some people on my list who did things to me that were life-changing I still had an obligation to own my thinking about it in the present day. And this is the radical, like I say, this is radical um, for the program to say, Joe, you no longer get to look at someone else's behavior and its effect on you as an excuse for being resentful toward them. Those days are over. Playtime is over. It's time to grow up. You want freedom? You're going to have to give up your selfish thinking about this. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Now we move on to JJ. Star one to unmute JJ with a question related to step four. Anyone else with a question related to step four? We have a few minutes left to our meeting this morning. Hi, my name is Bernadette. I am a compulsive overeater, and I have a question. Um, I would like for her to elaborate on the last thing she just said. She said no longer get to look at someone else's behavior as an excuse to be resentful. Could you elaborate on that for me or give me an example? Um. Well, I had a lot of people on my list. I mean, I had, you know, my parents were on my list and, you know, school teachers were on my list and my siblings were on my list and employers were on my list. And I could detail what they had done. Um, And I could, you know, I had a choice. I could either continue to justify my resentment by saying, well, that employer, you know, treated me badly, you know, in this particular circumstance, and they diminished my professional esteem. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can continue to latch on to that, or I can take a step back and say, 
What was my behavior in the workplace? What was my part here? I stayed at that job much longer than I wanted to. I stayed much far beyond the point at which I had outgrown the job. I was belligerent in the workplace. I stole from my employer. So I needed to be willing to, like the big book says, look at the list from an entirely different angle. And people are so afraid. This is almost universal in this program, and it was true for me too. I was so afraid that if I owned my behavior, I would be left with a feeling of injustice. I'm never going to get justice from that person or that institution. And my experience was really the opposite because once I owned my behavior and then I went through the rest of the steps, I was free. I was free of the resentment and I did not feel like I was deprived of justice. And I don't understand that. I remember calling my former boss who I had, I had had a pretty deep resentment toward her. I went through the, I looked at my own behavior. What did I do as an employee? And I realized, you know, I withheld my cooperation from her, but I did it in secret ways, silent ways. And I thought, oh, my gosh, well, that's the amend. I need to call her and say I didn't cooperate with you. You know, uh, it, my, silent, my silent rebellion, you know, that must have affected you as a boss. And I called her, you know, um, and I remember it was in the fall. I was doing my amends in the summer and fall. I called her in the fall, and I gave her the amend over the phone. Uh, I said, you know, I, I had, you know, I practiced silent. I don't remember what I said. It was something like, you know, silent. Um, I withheld my cooperation from you, and I'm sorry I did that. And the moment I said that, my resentment of her lifted. And that was true for all my other amends. I'm sorry I said this. I'm sorry I did that. I'm making restitution. When I did that, my resentment of them went away and never returned. I can't tell you why. I don't understand that. All I can say is that was my reality. Thank you, Bernadette, for the question. One last question before we bid farewell. Yes, yes, yes. I have I, a, I have one. Um, I do this too. Is Lisa. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's two people. Uh, this is Lisa from South Jersey. Yes, and Lisa, I'm Murphy. Okay. Can we both go, go Leah? Okay. Yes, um, Lisa and then Marcy. Yes, go all ahead. Right. Um, my question is. If th this has been such an excellent and thorough presentation of how to properly do the fourth step according to this method of the big book. Um, so if you have not done it that way, do you, either of you recommend that you go back and do it again, or do you just, like in uh, step the, t the nightly inventory in step 10, it says we continue, you know, to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Do you just continue to do that every night as thoroughly as possible, or do you go back 
and redo? I think that depends on whether you're free of your resentments. If you used another you method and you free are of free of your resentments, then that worked for you. Okay. I don't know why you would go back and redo something that worked the first time. Right. So you're, you're, mean, you're meaning free of the resentments that you had for those people listed there, not life as life happens, something comes up, and then you do a 10th step, and you call someone or you tell your sponsor and you clean that up. I'm just trying to distinguish those two things. Yeah, I mean, new things new things will come up, and, you know, the beauty of the 12 steps is that it, it provides a method by which we clean those up as we go, which is the 10th step, which is a 4 through 9. It's the exact same process. Right. It's exactly. just, oh, this is a new resentment rather than an old resentment. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, and and then the next person with a question. Was it Marcy? Yes, it's Murphy. Yeah, just Irish. <laughs> Yes. Um, this is Murphy, and I'm a compulsive overeater, and thank you so much, Joe, for your talk. It was wonderful. My question is, um, and I don't, you may not have any experience with this, but maybe um, you, know, you, you might be familiar with some who do. I'm just wondering how you would look at things like childhood abuse in terms of the fourth step that might have been sexual abuse or physical abuse, but you know, where the child was a true victim Mm -hmm. and um you know still has resentments that they really i don't know that that i would see that they would have any part in that other than holding on to it um and if you have any suggestions in terms of releasing that in in steps four through nine yeah and that's a great question i think you nailed it on the head just now you know that your part is holding on to it i mean and i get this question a lot from sponsees and i had this too in my own you know four step and some of us um were victims uh, as children uh, of certain kinds of abuse. And, of course, we don't have a part in someone else's behavior, especially when we were too young to do anything about it. We don't have a part in that. What we have a part in is the way we're thinking about it in the present day. That's our part. Because, you know, that's what's killing us. It's the resentment about it. And going through a four through nine, you know, does not mean that you are supposed to pretend that the things that were done to you were acceptable or that you're supposed to reconcile with someone who continues to be abusive. That's not what that means. What the first step is designed to do is alleviate us of our resentments, that inner turmoil that's just eating away at you about it. That's what the process is designed to do. Um, you know, I've worked with sponsees who had some abuse in their childhoods, and I will challenge them, and I will say, okay, your father did such and such to you when you were 10. Let's take a look at everything your father did. Okay, is that the only thing he did to you? Okay, he slapped you in the face one time. Is that the only thing your father ever did was slap you in the face? What else did he do? And I've gotten people to say, well, yeah, he, you know, I'm just making this up, but, you know, well, yeah, he, yeah, he took me to the amusement park that one time, and he helped me with my homework, and he encouraged me in sports, and he paid for my college, and he protected me against a neighborhood bully. And in other words, what I'm asking them to do is take a full look at their father, not just that one thing he did that one time. Because as a 10-year-old, you only have the choice but to experience that one thing in that one moment. But you're an adult now, 
and you're supposed to be, you know, going through a process to enable recovery now. You've got to grow up in your thinking, which is my father was a whole person, and he did a lot of things for me. And I'm going to take a look at his whole treatment of me, not just that one incident. For most of us, for most of the people who had some kind of abuse, that is the case. There were lots and lots of very good things that were done on behalf of us by our parents. Rarely is there a person who had a parent who was only abusive. But even if that were the case, if you had a parent who was only abusive, you still have to change your thinking about it because the resentment over it is killing you and keeping you in the food. So it doesn't matter. If you have a resentment, you still have to go through this process if you want to be free. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yes, thank you for the question. Thank everyone. Uh, thank you to everyone for your questions this morning. And, of course, Joe, thank you very much for your response to all the questions this morning and your time and energy sharing and carrying the message. And welcome. Of course, thank you. Thank you to Janice uh, for also being on the line earlier. I will now close a vision for you the way we always close our meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164 from the chapter entitled A Vision for You. And it goes as follows. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.